Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. I ain't going to say they were arguing, they weren't, but just wasn't clicking, whatever reason. It was a shocker. I did not see that coming, and I don't think uh, anybody on the team saw it coming. I pulled out on pit road and drove all the way down to the end of pit road. Man, I grabbed the wheel. I was like, gosh, thing feels good. I see all my friends. You know, and Jimmy Spencer. And Jimmy Spencer. 
the day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR. Forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, how about that Kyle Larson last night? He was on the move, wasn't he? It was a record-setting day for Hendrick Motorsports. I think somebody somewhere might have mentioned the fact on social media that it was the 269th win for Hendrick Motorsports, which topped the 268 that Petty Enterprises collected. That's what I heard. I heard that just as well, Rick, and that's why I said it was a record-setting evening for Kyle Larson and Hendrick Motorsports. So now Hendrick Motorsports is the all-time winningest team in NASCAR history. Now, I want to ask you a question. Uh Of all the drivers who ever won a race for Hendrick Motorsports, how many of them can you name? (laughs) Well, counting Kyle Larson, I'm sure about Jeff Gordon, that's two. Okay. Carol Bonnie? Yeah. Uh, You got me, Rick. I'm going to stop at three. Have you ever heard of Jimmy Johnson? <laughs> uh, <laughs> how did I miss that one? <laughs> All right. So that's how it's going to go, huh? All right. Well, here we go. This is the list of all time winners that have won races for Hendrick Motorsports to this point. They're not finished by any okay. means. All right. Oh. So we're going to see 300 easily. We might see 300 by the end of the season, the way things are going. (laughs) (laughs) So these are the drivers that have won for Hendrick Motorsports. Jeff Gordon, Jimmy Johnson, Chase Elliott, Terry Labonte, Dell Earnhardt Jr., Darrell Waltrip, Tim Richmond, Jeff Bodine, Casey Kane, Mark Martin, Ken Schrader, Alex Bowman, Kyle Busch, Ricky Rudd, William Byron, Kyle Larson, Jerry Nadeau, Brian Vickers, Casey Mears, and Joe Nemechek. Now, that is quite a list of drivers there, boy. Of that entire list, the one driver who looks the most out of place, at least to me, would be Mark Martin. Well, yeah, he was associated so long with Jack Roush and Ford. Yeah. You know, you tend to forget he did step out a time or two. He won the final race of his career for Hendrick Motorsports. So, yeah, that was a little bit out of place, at least to me. But then, Steve, Petty Enterprises. Let's see how you do on Petty Enterprises. Name the drivers that you can remember that won races for Petty Enterprises. Well, Richard Petty, of course. That's pretty good, Steve. (laughs) I'm old, but I'm not that old. All right. Who else? What else? Uh, I'm going to say John Andretti. Yes. And uh, Bobby Hamilton. Yes. Uh of course, I think Kyle, didn't he win a race for Petty Enterprises? He never not? won a race for That's, Petty Enterprises. I know that he, you know, they were his father's son teammates for a while. Uh, didn't last all that long as I remember. Uh, okay, Petty Enterprises. Oh, uh, I don't know. I'll give you a hint. There was a father-son duo that won races for Petty Enterprises, but it was not Richard and Kyle. Well, I'll tell you what, Rick, it's really heck to get old. <laughs> <laughs> How about Richard and Lee? 
Oh, of course. <laughs> okay. All right. So these are the drivers that did win races for Petty Enterprises. Richard Petty, Lee Petty, Jim Pascal, Pete Hamilton, Bobby Pete Hamilton, Hamilton yeah. Buddy Baker, Marvin Panch, and John Andretti. Well, that's another impressive list. Steve, here is one of the things that I have loved about doing this podcast from day one, but one of our primary missions in doing this show here on the same vault podcast is the importance of connecting the sports past with its present. And Steve, back in episode 32, we talked with Jeff Bodon, who scored the very first win for Hendrick Motorsports in Winston Cup competition at Martinsville in the spring of 1984. He talked about just how close that team was to shutting down. We won, won our eighth race together at Martinsville. And uh, this, after the seventh race, Rick came to Harry and I and said, guys, I'm really, really sorry. You know, I've spent a lot more money than I thought I was going to have to spend getting this team going. And wow. uh, I just can't keep going. You know, I, I just can't keep doing it. <laughs> I'm going to have to shut the door. And Harry said, well, Rick, the car's ready. The car is already, we got tires, the engine's in it, everything's ready to go. It won't cost you a nickel more to let us go up there and race. You know, that Bodine, he's won a few races up there, which in modifies the late model, I'd won a bunch. And uh, so Rick said, okay. Rick and his wife, Linda, weren't even there. They were at Green in Greensboro, North Carolina, at a church conference. He'd promised to go there. <laughs> and... Uh, of course, the story is we went up there and won that race. And Rick has told this to past and present drivers. You know, if Jeff hadn't won that race, Jeff and Harry, it took, took a bunch of us, hadn't won that race, there wouldn't be a Hendrick Motorsports. I don't know where you guys would be driving right now. And, uh, so, I mean, that's a true story. He was going to shut the door. And, boy, oh, boy, he didn't want to, but he was just out of money. So, thank goodness, thank God that we went up there and we ended up winning that race, uh, he was telling that to Jeff Gordon and Earnhardt Jr. and Jimmy Johnson one day in his shop. And we're doing a little TV thing. And he told the story. I said, you guys believe that, right? Well, heck yeah. Rick just told us. Yeah, we believe it. I said, well, don't you guys think you owe me something? <laughs> <laughs> and, and Gordon goes, uh, hey, the check will be in the mail. Now, every time I see Jeff. I said, Jeff, I haven't got that darn check yet. (laughs) They must have lost it. I'll I'll send you another one. Yeah. (laughs) I still haven't got that check. (laughs) In all seriousness, how big a vindication was that Martinsville win for you personally after everything that you'd been through to try to make it to that level? I don't call it vindication. It was just just a natural thing for me. I'd won a lot of races there. And Mr. Earls uh, was like a second father to me. Was he really? He cool. really treated us really well. Appreciated. He appreciated all the Northerners coming down to race those races at Martinsville. And uh, we just, uh, you know, I'm not the only one he, he he had a good relationship with it, but he, we did. And uh, so it couldn't have happened at a better racetrack. And of course, I'd won, like I said, modified and late model races there and had a lot of grandfather clocks. So it was, it was, it was the right place to win. And of course, it was the right time because. If it hadn't happened, there wouldn't be a hundred motorsports. But uh, no, it's just natural for me to go there and run good and have a chance of winning. And it really was—I mean, of course, the first win is a big deal. 
but I kind of expected it. If Jeff doesn't win that race, does Hendrick Motorsports really shut down? And if Hendrick Motorsports really does shut down, what does that do to the course of NASCAR history? Do we ever hear of the names Jeff Gordon and Jimmy Johnson? And who That's all right. I don't, I don't really know, Rick. I tend to doubt it. Maybe, maybe not for all the drivers that Hendrick had, but certainly a portion of them probably would never, ever show their face in cop competition. Steve, this week in our first segment, we are going to share the third and final installment of our interview with Hutt Strickland. And Hutt this week talks about practicing the number 28 Robert Yates racing Ford at Charlotte and the impact that he feels like that had on Dell Jarrett's season with that team and also his future with that team. That was a big deal. Yeah, it certainly was. As I understand it, Hutt went and practiced the car and found things that really helped that team, helped that car, and really helped Dale in that race and further on down the line. Hutt also talks about his second-place finish in the 1996 Southern 500 at Darlington, his eventual decision to get out of the sport, what he's doing now, and the life-threatening disease that he endured several years ago. You know, Rick, I honestly don't remember that. Wow. Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the September 5th, 1996 issue of Winston Cup scene that featured Jeff Gordon's win in the 1996 Southern 500 Hutt's second place finish, a strong run by Jimmy Spencer, Dell Jarrett's attempt to win the Winston million bonus and rumors that Dell Earnhardt was going to buy North Wilkesboro. I heard those rumors and I immediately dismissed them. I didn't think Dale was going to have anything to do with that kind of investment. This week, we have new Patreon support from Clark Ruland and Ricky Boyd and increased support from Philip Pegler. So Clark and Ricky and Philip, thank y'all so much. When Clark signed up, he also sent us the most amazing direct message on Twitter. Clark wrote, Rick, I wanted to touch base with you and Steve just to say thank you. I grew up in southwestern Virginia as the only race fan in the house. When I was six or seven years old, a gentleman that worked with my father would give him old copies of Winston Cup scene to give to me. I learned everything about NASCAR at the same time I was learning to read. In the years following, my parents would get me my own subscription. I couldn't wait to pick up the mail on Wednesdays after school to run inside and skim through the latest paper. Your work shaped me as a fan and influenced my career path. I graduated from Virginia Tech with a degree in journalism and spent all four years working as a writer and editor for the sports section of the student newspaper, covering everything from football to baseball and even some racing stories about Virginia Tech grads and NASCAR. After graduation, I worked as a copy editor for the Lynchburg News in advance before taking a job with NASCAR Media Group in Charlotte. My passion for the history of the sport really grew while at NASCAR Media Group while doing interviews with legends like David Pearson, Bobby Allison, and Cotton Owens. It was all new to me. While there, the Hall of Fame opened its doors and I was able to see that history firsthand. Since then, I've moved back to Virginia. The sport has evolved, but I still enjoy everything old and new. I went to Circuit of the Americas and still haven't dried out. This past weekend, just months after visiting North Wilkesboro for the first time, 
since going to a race there in 1995 with that same gentleman that gave me his Winston Cup scene newspapers over 25 years ago. While on the flights back from Austin, I listened to the Firestorm series. Excellent work, man. I still have all my papers saved from that era in my basement. Hearing those stories brought all those memories back. Once again, thanks to both of you for everything you've done over the years at Winston Cup Scene and what you're doing now. I look forward to your new podcast episodes every week. I joined Patreon this morning, and you are the reason for it. Wow. You know, the thing I like about Clark is that he discovered racing very young. He knew he wanted to follow racing and wanted to be a big fan, and he decided to lead his career into journalism. And in journalism, he got to live a dream because he got to interview some of the top names in the sport. He became a part of NASCAR. Way to go, Clark. My congratulations. I need to follow up with him. He said that he's from Southwest Virginia, and that's where my mom was born. She was born in really? Coburn, Virginia. I worked 10 years in Roanoke, not yeah. far from Southwest well, Virginia. I don't know about that part. So listeners, if you can, please consider helping us as a supporter on Patreon, support us on PayPal. If you can do a monthly contribution, you can do that via patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you prefer to just do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. That year, 95 was Del Jarrett's first year in the 28 car with Robert Yates. Mm -hmm. And he was evidently having trouble getting up to speed there for whatever reason. Obviously, he hadn't forgotten how to drive a car. Right. But you did wind up taking that car out for a spin mm-hmm. at Charlotte and testing it out and giving your input. How did that come about, and what was your impression of what was going on with that team at that time? Um, well, first off, I had a great relationship with Robert Yates through Davey and and, and – and Davey had always told Robert, hey, if anything ever happens to me, give HUD a shot. I want him to have a shot. Wow. And uh, matter of fact, Robert's dead and gone now. We can't ask him, but there's other people that heard him say this. That he's, Davey would say, tell Robert, hey, get, get HUD to drive another car. And said, said, he's a better driver than I am. And, of course, I never got to show that. But nonetheless, uh, that, that was a huge compliment. But, um, but Robert come over there. Basically, they were struggling pretty good. And um, and and I think between Larry Mack and uh, and and Dale, I don't know. I don't know that they. I ain't gonna say they were arguing. They weren't, but just wasn't clicking for whatever reason. And uh, and I had an extremely good feel for a car, man. I, I knew like from my from my late models and stuff like that. You know how how with the with the bump steers. I knew how everything about the suspension on the front and the back, and um, and I knew. When I felt something, what I felt, and um, and I and I that particular day there, I went out in it, and I said, "Man, this thing is. You got to feel like the right front wheel's bumping in, which means in travel, the, the right front wheel was pointed yeah. towards the infield." And um, and so uh, I said, "If it was me, I'd put put some bump out in the right front and, and let Dale go run it." And and man, yeah, Larry can probably tell you a story than I better than I can, but. Um, they made those one or two changes, and man, that thing come to life that weekend. I mean, that thing, I I don't, 
I'm pretty sure I don't remember if he won a race, but I'm pretty sure he did. But I know he dominated uh, that weekend. Uh, yeah. You know, after that, well, he didn't and, win at Charlotte. He won later at Pocono. Yeah, yeah. But I know that that night there, he was. I mean, because um, I remember him passing me like. I mean, he was. They, they were hooked up, especially as the night went on. They were they were really hooked up, and uh, but that was a good thing. You know, what I mean, it got them going, and uh, and glad to do it because, like I said, that that car always had a special place in my heart for for me personally. What was DJ's reaction when you got in it? I don't know. I think he was mad. Uh, you know, he didn't understand why they why they got me because I wasn't a Dale Earnhardt. I wasn't a. Um, but I I had worked enough with Robert, and I think he knew be a Davy and different things like that, that I did have a good feel. And and and, uh, and the way it turned out, it was it was one of the single best things that happened for that team. It assured Dale that, hey, man, I can get the job done. If I just got to get the car. And I think Dale heard me tell him on the radio the way I described it and things like that. And I think Dale got to the point where he had and, – and I've been like that. You, you get clammed up. You don't express – aren't able to express what what's going on for whatever reason, whether you got – too much in your brain can't can't get it out but but um but like i said that that weekend there i feel like that weekend there really um it was a it was you know it was a, a bad good deal the way it turned out you touched on this just a little bit but this was just less than two years removed from davy's accident and it still had a 28 on the doors and the roof it still had a big texaco decal on the hood what was it like for you to get in the 28 car? Um, Did you consider it Davy's car, or was it just another race car at that point? When, when I got in the car, um, when are you talking about? When when you got in the 28 car at Charlotte to help them out. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I still looked at Davy's car, yeah, 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 without a doubt. I still looked at it trying to help Davy's team. Like I said, that, uh, that, that team, Robert and – Doug, even they all had a special place in here for that team, and uh, I wanted to see it run good, even even though if it took outrunning me, you know, I just I wanted to see it run good. That was Kenny's last year in sport. Was that something that you saw coming, or was that maybe a shock when he closed the door? It was a shocker. Yeah, okay. I did not see that coming. Really? Uh, yeah, okay. and I don't think uh, anybody on the team saw it coming. Um, we were on the brink of. Uh, of some really uh, something good really fixing to happen because uh, they had some good race cars, uh, good light race cars, good aero stuff, uh, good engines. Uh, they had the whole combination. Uh, and and when I got over there um, with them, we all clicked. Uh, it, it just it was uh, we had confidence in one another, um, and it was just it was just it was just a thrill to get in that car week in and week out. Um, and, and, but it definitely took the wind off our sail when he told us that he was going to shut the team down at the end of the year. He wanted everybody to stay together, but he was going to shut the team down at the end of the year. And, uh, man, once you say that, it's, you know, everybody <laughs> yeah. scatters. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. 1996 Southern 500 at Charlotte. You're with the Stavola brothers, mm-hmm. and you do have a pretty sporty day. You led a total of 143 laps, but then you finished second to Jeff Gordon. Take me through that weekend. You'd evidently tested before that race and found something. What'd you What'd you have? Well, actually, I don't remember testing. Um, 
Th- this car we had. Read the ones oh, to come okay. saying that okay. I just Maybe gave we you. did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember testing this. The rider was a really good rider, that okay. story. <laughs> all right. Okay, all right. Maybe so. <laughs> He didn't, didn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> he didn't know what he's talking about. Trust me. <laughs> um, I, I do remember this very distinctly because I was telling somebody this story the other day. As a matter of fact, I told Richard Petty about this. He told me uh, I went to Darlington here a year or two ago and and uh, to do a few deals and everything. Anyway, um, Richard come up to me and put his arm around me. He said, "Boy," he said, "I tell you what." To this day, I've never seen a car go go around that corner, go through the corner like you did in that, that eight number eight Circuit City car. He no, said, did he "Man, really? he said, man, that thing was unbelievable." And uh, but uh, it's really really funny. Um, and and I've never done this ever in all the thousands of races I probably ran. Um, uh, I started down pit road. You know, I used to would you know when they'd start practice and stuff, everybody line up on pit road. And well, I was, I pulled out on pit road and drove all the way down to the end of pit road. And I'm like, man, I grabbed the wheel. I was like, gosh, thing feels good. It just had a feel in the steering wheel. Well, I come on the radio and I told Philippe Lopez, my crew chief, I said, Philippe, I said, this sounds crazy, but I said, this car is going to be good. What? <laughs> he said, what? I said, man, this thing's going to be good. He said, Man, how can you tell that driving down pit road? I said, I don't know. I said, but it's got a feel in the steering wheel that, that really, really I like. I, I don't know. It just had a feel of grip. And sure enough, man, we run that race, and we didn't. We made minimal changes on that car from the time we unloaded. And uh, But that was by far the best race car I ever set in a cup car of any time. Uh, it, just, it just had a feel. We carried that car after we finished second at Darlington. We carried it to Pocono, and uh, I managed to total it at Pocono and qualifying, going for the pole. And we had the pole, uh, went through one and two. Uh, I went through one, and we went through t- turn two, the tunnel turn, and went into three. And uh, uh, the driver didn't take into consideration the mile per hour he was carrying after going through the one and two <laughs> so fast. When I hauled it down in three, it, it uh, spun with me and uh, I driver sided the outside wall and killed that car. Uh, made me sick. But anyway, we couldn't uh, make a long story short. We couldn't couldn't ever figure out what that car had that the other ones didn't. And uh, and and Philippe had done all sorts of things on that car, but never never could make it. Never could make a duplicate. Nineteen ninety eight again. It's a kind of a mirror of what had happened with Kenny Bernstein. The Stavolas are nearing the end of their run mm-hmm. in NASCAR and you part ways with them fairly early in the year. What what happened? Uh I think I think basically um we had I ain't gonna say grown stagnant, but that's basically what had happened. Um um Billy had wanted to uh, a couple different things. We run uh the ninety six season was renting engines from TriStar. And uh, uh, and then uh, and then we we started the ninety um, seven season and we and, uh, we went with um, maybe Ernie Elliott or somewhere. Anyway, we, we we started trying to build our own engines and things like that, uh, and and to try to catch up, starting from scratch and try to catch up to the Robert Yates and the Hendricks and stuff. Uh, wasn't going to happen. And uh, so um, we just basically kept getting worse and worse. And 
and uh, finally uh, we just decided to part ways. Uh, it was a uh, it was too bad. Love Billy Stavola to death and still do, but it just it just one of them things that didn't work out. And we had a few good races together, but not like we real both of us really wanted. The rest of '98 and '99 and 2000, they were they were pretty tough mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. Was there ever a point in there where you said, you know what, I'm going to go find something else to do? What kept you around? Uh, I don't know. I really don't. Um, Junie Donnelly had come along at a time for me um, when that time uh, uh, with, with a sponsor, a new sponsor, Hills Brothers Coffee. Um, uh, had a great relationship with Junie and, and the sponsor, uh, but it was so very hard there to to get good people in Richmond. Uh, there were some good people there, but we needed more key good people, and uh, very hard to get them. And um, I was in and out of that car from time to time, trying to between going up there, helping them set it up, and meeting them at the racetrack, trying to crew chief it myself, different things, and drive it uh, from from inside the car. It was kind of tough. Were you actually crew chiefing? Uh, I did a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. No kidding. Yeah, Philippe Lopez finally come up there um, uh, towards the end of the thing, um, and 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 he he helped us a lot. Um, but they had some really old cars. They was heavy, yeah, uh, yeah. which some racetracks that don't hurt you as bad, but most of them it does. And uh, but um, the the trip to Richmond back and forth, we finished. Um, um, we run Indianapolis the one year there, 80, uh, excuse me, 99, uh, 2000, something like that. Had a good run at Indy, uh, with Junie and, um, but, but that was, that was pretty much it. You did wind up over at Bill Davis's. Mm-hmm. How did that go down? Um, Hills Brothers had reached a point with Junie. They wanted to go another direction with, with another team. Not, not always with me, but but with another team, and I understood because they wanted to do better, and and, and uh, I understood that. Uh, but they had an opportunity to go with um, – they talked to a couple different ones. I know Andy Petrie's team was one of them. Uh, Bill Davis's team was another. Uh, and with the money, I guess, that they had to spend, uh, I guess they felt like that Bill Davis was the best. They totally made that decision on their own. And um, – they went with Bill Davis, and um, it just um, um, – I don't know. We had some decent qualifying runs with them. From, but there again, it was just one of the things we just couldn't ever seem to get the whole yeah. package yeah. together. Yeah. Uh, uh, it was just a um, – every week, it was always something. What was Ward's reaction to having a teammate? Um, I think he was okay with it. Okay. Uh, yeah, he, he, um, him and Tommy Baldwin, they would try to help us from time to time, but, uh, Ward was kind of unique, uh, as far as, <laughs> uh, no true words have ever no, been spoken no, on this podcast. No, <laughs> but, uh, he knew, uh, when you give Ward the feel of a car that he wanted, he would go fast and, and, uh, and Tommy Baldwin knew that. And, but, um, it, but anyway, we, we, um, we had some okay runs, but never really any serious good finishes. Bristol Night Race in 2002. Mm-hmm. That was your last race with that team. Yep. 
and it was also your last race period mm-hmm. what took place what happened um we had basically reached a point i say we pam and i had basically reached a point where um we struggled 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 and uh just just uh, things weren't happening and uh, so uh come home and told pam i said i, I think i'm done course she's like oh you can't do that we can't we gotta do something we gotta you can't quit driving and all that stuff you know, i said well we're gonna start a business and 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 uh we're gonna do something that we that i know and uh give that a whirl and uh so when we decided to start our automobile salvage yard we um almost turned her back on racing and just and and give that a hundred percent and went at it and uh i the direction we went. And so you weren't hurt or anything or? No. Um, you know, I did get hurt um, a few times there from getting in and out of a few cars uh, in the 98 season. Got us to Volvo's car. I drove for uh, Buzz McCall, the Caterpillar car there, and um, different things. I uh, had a um, crack my sternum at one of the races at, at Loudon in a race there. I had to miss three or four races after that to get that healed up but um for the most part it was it was a deal i just reached a point i was tired of 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 doing all the riffraff that i was doing and um and was ready to do do something else you know i'd reached a point in my in my life that you know thank god for the opportunity i had but uh it was time to move on basically how difficult was it for you to transition out of the sport to be away from it. it it's very tough uh very um it's one of the things that um it takes some coming off of a high if you is a is a way i would describe it it's uh um but i was at peace with it because i got to see my son play basketball for the first time okay i got to see my daughter at her first piano recital I got to see that something I'd never got seen until I stopped driving and, and realized there was a lot of other things out there besides driving a race car. And uh, I'd reached a point where I, I was just I was happy doing what I was doing. The biggest thing I missed about the racing part of it was a paycheck, you know. But, <laughs> but yeah, but because uh, it was a good time in the sport to be in it. Uh, but um, the, the direction that my life had turned to, it was. Uh, it was a good direction, and it was a direction that felt a lot better on Monday mornings when I'd wake up out of bed versus when I have a massive crash and yeah. wake up and be all sore and couldn't even get out of bed hardly. But, uh, it, you know, it was a good thing. What are you doing today? Um, I think about getting back into it all the time. Okay. All right. <laughs> but I know it's to a point um, – uh, I'll get to where I'm – I'll tell you in a second where I'm at today, but – um, let me back up a little bit. Um, uh, uh, I'm almost 60 years old now at the age of 46. I had a, I had a, um, I got hospitalized with massive blood clots in my lungs. No, yeah, I was, I was in the hospital for about a week and a half. Um, almost died. Um, and I got later diagnosed with a rare blood clotting disorder and, uh, called a antiphospholipid syndrome. And uh, so I had to go on high doses of, of, of blood thinner 
And um, and the way it turned out, I'm, I'll, I'll have to be on high doses of blood thinner for the rest of my life. And knowing that, there's no way that NASCAR would ever allow anybody back in anybody to do that. Yeah. Although my condition, I could probably get away with it than most people because uh, I cut myself. If I cut myself, I'm not a free bleeder like most old people take blood thinner for because thins their blood where it makes their blood pressure, relegates the blood, blood pressure. But um, mine is strictly because my blood clots too good. Um, but it's uh, it was a weird thing come out of the blue, hit me when it hit me. Um, but like I said, the way it turned out, it, you know, it's, it's, I can do anything I want to do now still, but uh, Pam freaks out when I get on my motorcycle and makes a lap around the, the country here. But, Pam should freak yeah. out. <laughs> Stay off but, that motorcycle. But, but really, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know it, it, it's, it's not as serious. It, it is, but it ain't, it, you know, as serious as it sounds. Uh, like I said, the good part about it is if I cut myself, I do, my blood does clot, even at, even when it's really thin. So, um, But uh, there's no way, if I ever wanted to go back to run a NASCAR race, that NASCAR would ever let me do that just for that reason. And uh, But uh, I'm okay with that. But I've got where I'm at now. Um, uh, I manage a company uh, a warehouse over here for for a good friend of mine, Greg Fernelli, uh, named Stock Car Steel. Uh, most racers around the area know who that is, and we sell um, all steel and aluminums and all that stuff to probably ninety ninety five percent of the race team, NASCAR teams and stuff. And uh, I'm involved in racing now from a different angle. Uh, but I, I enjoy it. I see all my friends, you know, and Jimmy Spencer, and Jimmy Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's okay. Yeah. Nothing yeah. wrong with Jimmy, yeah. but yeah. Uh, you know, hate him as a racer. <laughs> but he's okay. What was it like getting back into that world a little bit and seeing your friends again after working at the the Auto Salvage Yard? Um, pretty cool. It really was like a family reunion. Uh, still to this day, I still. Uh, I tell people I have to go out and fix screw ups from time to time, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. but uh, but anyway, I, I get to see a lot of stuff that that I go in some of these race teams and they'll, hey, Hutt, come over here, look, let me show you what we're doing now, and they'll show you top secret stuff that yeah. you know back when Hutt was a the driver, they wouldn't show Hutt that, but now they'll show me that. <laughs> but uh, some of the stuff you privy to now that it's pretty cool, but but which like I said, then you you wouldn't be, but it's pretty cool. All right, well, who's doing what? Well, I Top can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth a shot. <laughs> to start off this week, we're going to jump back a little bit from where we left off in the last episode. But at the start of the 1995 season, Hutt was on the sidelines. He was a driver looking for a ride. He's at Charlotte going into the 600. And Dell Jarrett is struggling to get up to speed in his first year with Robert Yates Racing. Larry McReynolds gets Hud in the car. Hut takes it out for practice, comes back in, and he gives his input on what he thinks is going on. And again, Steve, we have a connection to one of our past episodes. Larry Mack discussed this very incident back in episode 103. So we we go into 95 and we're not running very good. I mean, no. we did go to Daytona and sit on the pole for the 500. We ended up finishing fifth, but it's the damn hardest I've ever fought, I think, for a fifth-place finish in all my life. <laughs> um, we just were not running good. 
And I learned a, a life lesson in those first eight or ten races. The problem was myself and Dale. I was being hard-headed. One, I was missing Ernie Irvin. And I was being hard-headed and basically looking at Dale, not verbatim, but for a choice of words, look, we won races, sat on poles, and led laps. you got to figure out how to drive this thing. Dale Jarrett, kind of being the meek and humble individual that he is, these guys won races and led laps and sat on poles. I need to figure out how to drive it. We were on a highway to nowhere. And honestly, I was about ready to tell Robert, find somebody else. I mean, not 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 talking about Dale, talking about myself. Right. I yeah. can't do it. Yeah. Can't do it. And it took all the way to the Coke 600 weekend before we finally got on track. And what it took, we were struggling our guts out. And Robert was trying to help, but I don't think he knew how to really help. You know, Robert wasn't one of those owners that got in there and, and you need to do this and you need to do this, and you're, that just wasn't Robert. And Robert says, you want to get somebody to return or run a few laps in the car? And I said, absolutely. He said, let me go down there and get Hut Strickland to come down here and run it a few laps. So Hut came down there, and and I told Dale, I said, Dale, before he gets in it, why don't you kind of tell him what you've been feeling? You know, it wasn't like Dale and I were at each other. We just, we just wasn't communicating about the race car like we needed to be communicating. And so Hutt got in there, and he didn't run no faster than Dale, which if he had, a, that might have been even a bigger problem. Yeah. But he came in, and he says, man, this, 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 this. Okay, let's go to work on it. We worked on it. So it was, it was a wake-up call for me because all I was looking for is somebody to be adamant about what the car's doing and let's go to work on it. And Dale needed to see somebody that was adamant about telling us about the race car. And it fixed us. We go to Pocono, what, two or three weeks later, win the race up there. It's the only race we won, but we were competitive right. the rest of the year. Steve, the thing that I think is so telling there is that Larry Mack pretty much gave credit to Hutt for turning the season around for DJ in the 28 car. Then you consider just how much it must have meant to Hutt to climb behind the wheel of that 28 car, if only for a single practice run, given how close he and Davey had been over the years. Well, here's what I think. I think this indicates that Hutt Strickland knew how to set a car up. He knew how to get the most out of a car because he obviously did that for Larry Max, Steve, and Dale Jarrett, passed that information along to them, and that made a great big change, not only that day, but for the rest of the season. Give high credit to me. He knew exactly what he was doing. I think the thing that it says is the fact that they weren't just going to put any Yahoo in that garage behind the wheel of that car. They weren't going to go to just anybody for their input they trusted Hutt enough to really value his input. They had an idea of what I just spoke about. They had an idea that Hutt was the kind of driver they could get the job done. Like we talked about Hendrick Motorsports possibly closing down early in the 1984 season. Think about the dominoes that fall if that 28 team isn't able to get it together in 1995. DJ doesn't get the ride in the 88 car. He might not have gotten another quality opportunity ever. Now he had already won the Daytona 500. So I don't think that there's any question that he had forgotten how to drive a race car 
but if it doesn't work out in the 28 car, what are other car owners going to think? And if he doesn't get another quality ride in the sport, maybe he doesn't win another couple of Daytona 500s. Maybe he doesn't win the championship. And if he doesn't do that, he doesn't make it into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Now, I'm not going to be so bold as to say that Hutch Strickland should get sole credit for DJ being in the NASCAR Hall of Fame, but I still think it's kind of interesting to think what might have happened if Dale Jarrett had not been able to get up to speed with that 28 car. Yeah, I see your point. Uh, this is what we've talked about many times on the show. We've, this is fake. Hutch steps in, does the job of the 28 car, and things get turned around. It only takes one small thing sometimes to make a team reach the status that it needs to be at. I think that happened, and I hope it was a part of it. Just like 1984, Jeff won a race for Hendrick Mosforts, and that propelled Hendrick to go further ahead and achieve more. Not only that, but it also allowed them to get a sponsor. That is what they really needed back then. That victory propelled that. There are thousands of incidents just like this all the way throughout the NASCAR's history. Hutt led a bunch of laps and got himself a second-place finish in the 1996 Southern 500 at Darlington. And we're going to talk more about the race itself in our second segment. But after everything that he had been through in his career to that point and all the different teams that he had been with and all the disappointments that he had faced on the racetrack, he finished second in the Southern 500 on a very, very, very hot and difficult day. So, Steve, what do you think that meant to Hutt? That meant a great deal. I think it meant that all the sacrifices he had made and all the difficulties he had had over the years to try to stay with the competitive ride got a small reward with a second-place run. I think it proved to Hutt that whatever the problems were that kept him out of competitive rides, he wasn't that problem. He could drive a race car. You have talked about your admiration for Junie Donlevy as being a Southern gentleman many, many times here on the show, but Hutt did wind up driving for Junie, and that was an operation. You mentioned the challenges of low sponsorship and that kind of thing, but one of the other challenges that it faced was it being up in Richmond, Virginia, well out of the typical NASCAR corridor in Charlotte, Mooresville, and states well straight up 77 so they were off in richmond and so that presented challenges they couldn't just lure somebody away from another team and them not have to move or anything if you went to right. work for junie dunlevy that was a major commitment of packing up from north carolina and moving all the way to richmond is that something that you and junie ever talked about well, we mentioned it once or twice, but uh, Junie, you got to remember, Junie was around as long as there was a NASCAR. He was there from the very beginning, and uh, he was not the kind of guy that really wanted to move away from his home and reestablish his roots somewhere else. He started his team in Richmond. That's where it was going to stay. He tried to make the most of it. I think that uh, Junie had a great career as a team owner, considering the status that he had, which was well-liked, well-respected, but not with a team that was going to, you know, dominate the sport or amass a lot of victories. 2002 Bristol night race. 
Hunt is in an accident and he is credited with a 38th place finish. He comes home and he tells Pam, that's it. I'm done. And he starts a salvage yard. And Steve, I respect Hutt for walking away essentially on his own terms. He said he was at peace with the decision. He got to see his son play basketball for the first time. He got to go to his daughter's piano recital. And so everything that he had missed out on again and again, we've heard it on the podcast while people were concentrating on life in the sport, they were missing out on life at home and Hutt got to experience that. And I think that's what got him over the hump of really missing the sport. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. When Hutt decided to quit, Hutt probably thought about his more or less up and down, you know, racing career that he had. And he was at a point where I think he was totally uh, willing to leave the sport because he didn't see himself getting any better in terms of competition. And here's a point I'd like to make. I wonder if Hutt's career would have been much different for him had he been able to find roots with one team and establish relationships and work together for more than one year and see if they can make themselves better and enjoy success that way. Look at his career. He drove for what? Oslin and Bobby Allison and Junior Johnson, Travis Carter, the Savolbas, Juni, and even Bill Davis. Man, that's a lot of teams in a relatively short amount of time. I think a driver and a team have a chance to be more successful if they find the right chemistry together. And that is what Hutt missed. Well, Steve, there is more to the story. About 14 years ago, Hutt gets to feeling bad. And he is hospitalized with massive blood clots in his lung. Now, <laughs> Steve, do you want to take a crack at pronouncing what he had? <laughs> <laughs> Give it a uh, shot. <laughs> well, Steve, I'm going to take a crack at it. What Hutt had was caused by a condition called antiphospholipid syndrome. Oh, oh very good. So I could be a doctor, man. <laughs> no, you couldn't. <laughs> All right. Antiphospholipid syndrome. And it is very rare less than 200,000 cases each year in the U.S. And this is kind of surprising to me. It's much more common in women than in men. So Hutt had to deal with that, and he's now on blood thinners and everything like that. He looks to be in great shape now. He's doing well personally and physically. Well, I'm glad he's doing well because that condition of blood clots, uh, that sounds mighty scary to me, man. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens. And if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. 
Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter SCENE at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, the September 5th, 1996 issue of Winston Cup scene. By the time that year's edition of the Mountain Dew Southern 500 rolled around, it was just barely beginning to dawn on people (laughs) (laughs) that this Jeff Gordon kid was a halfway decent race car driver. I mean, he'd only won the inaugural Brickyard 400. He'd only won the 1995 championship. And this was his seventh win of the 1996 season. He had won the last three races at Darlington, but yeah, I think people were just beginning to catch on to the fact that this Gordon kid was halfway decent behind the wheel. Well, I think you're exactly right. One thing about Jeff, all the uh, grief he took for being just a kid and for being wonder boy and a guy given everything he needed to race, of course, that's all false. He went out and earned everything. And I think the fans by this time are grudgingly accepting the fact that this kid can drive a car. Well, yeah. Well, I was going to say whether or not they liked it, <laughs> Right, that was a different matter. You couldn't deny the talent behind the wheel, but yeah, I'm like you, the people who say that he was handed everything with a silver spoon. No, no, that no. just ain't the case. He was no. very good, very early. And it earned him that top ride with Hendrick Motorsports. Jeff got by Hutt Strickland for the lead on lap 352. And he led the final 16 circuits to capture his third consecutive win at Darlington. Jeff said, Hutt drove a great race. He was strong on new tires. My car was tight on new tires, and there was nothing I could do but let him get away and hope he would get caught up in traffic and then fade. My only chance was to come off turn two and get alongside him in turn three. I wondered if he had an engine problem because he did lose a lot of water. He was struggling on the straightaways. Hutt led three times for a total of 143 laps, but he developed an overheating problem and was also pushing late in the race. The week going into that race, Hutt and his Tavola Brothers racing team had tested Richmond, and Hutt said, we went up there with an open mind. We found a lot of things that we were doing wrong. We came back here, unloaded the car, and it was fast right off the truck. Really, I have to think back on Richmond and what we learned there. We certainly applied it here. Now, of course, Hutt was asked what that secret happened to be. (laughs) And Hutt replied, I know what it is, but I'm not going to (laughs) say. And that's a shock. (laughs) We've heard that I'm not going to say more than once from more than one driver (laughs) over the years. (laughs) Steve, I hit the trifecta on Hutt's sidebar in this issue. I wrote the sidebar. I managed to get myself in the photo that ran with this sidebar, and I kind of sort of managed to get myself on ESPN when Hutt was interviewed for a second-place finish. (laughs) You're the great photo bomber, huh? (laughs) (laughs) That is something that over time I actually tried not to do. When the cameras were at the pumps, 
I tried everything I possibly could to not get on TV. You and I both have seen Goober standing around in the background of an interview. There was one guy early on on ESPN that was basically at every race, and he followed the ESPN camera crew up and down pit road during pre-race introductions. I mean, he was in every shot <laughs> in the background. So that's not something that I tried to do later on. I'm certainly glad, Rick, that you didn't try to do that because how many viewers would be horrified week after week to see this creature <laughs> standing in the in the pits? Steve, <laughs> it's okay to think it and not actually say it there, Hoss. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just telling you like it is, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> the storyline going into this race was pretty easy to follow. Del Jarrett was going for the Winston million bonus of $1 million. Now, something that I noticed in the photo spread on this race was DJ wore a helmet commemorating his run for the Winston million. It had a decal of a $1 million bill with his face on it, plus logos for Daytona and Charlotte, where he had won the Daytona 500 and the Coca-Cola 600 earlier in the year to make himself eligible for the bonus, but then it also had a Darlington logo on it. Now I'm going to pull out a quote from the West Wing, one of my other favorite TV shows of all time and say this to me by wearing all those decals on his helmet, the million dollar bill and the Daytona logo and the Charlotte logo where he'd already won, but to wear the Darlington logo that he hadn't won yet. To me, DJ kind of tempted the wrath of the whatever from high atop the thing. <laughs> <laughs> there are plenty of drivers who would never touch that helmet because they tell you, if I wear this thing, it's going to jinx me. I'm not wearing it. And I can name several of them that would do that. After DJ showed up with that helmet, Robert Yates and Todd Parrott should have went the Toby Ziegler route and made him go outside, turn around three times, and spit. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, <laughs> the jinx. <laughs> Bill Elliott collected the million-dollar bonus, of course, the first year that it was offered in 1985, but nobody else had since been able to take that kind of check to the bank. And at first, things were looking pretty good for DJ. He started from the pole, and he was out front on lap 46 when the oil hit the fan. <laughs> I'm glad you cleaned that up. <laughs> there was all on the track and you reported in your race lead that most thought it came from a broken O-ring on Ed Barrier's car. Robert Presley and Brett Bodine spun while DJ, Rusty Wallace, Ernie Irvin, and Derek Cope all got into the wall as well. So DJ said in the sidebar, I've said all along that our car didn't concern me as much as getting caught up in someone else's misfortune. And that's what we did. I saw a car get into the wall up there, but you couldn't see any oil. I just got in there and hit the oil. Not much else you can do. I remember that. I was down in the infield that day, and I remember asking on the radio what had happened to DJ because I noticed that he had dropped back. And Deb, <laughs> who always called the race on the radio from the press box when she was at a race, she came back. And she said in no uncertain terms that he'd gotten into the wall. And I remember thinking to myself, well, don't gun it. 
I could have seen it too. If I was in the press box (laughs) (laughs) and Steve to this day, there are two schools of thought when it comes to reporting on the race. There are those who prefer to be in the press box for an event while there are also those who would much, much rather be down in the infield. Now take all the COVID-19 restrictions out of the equation where the media was restricted to the press box until this past weekend at Charlotte. If you're in the press box, you can see the entire racetrack. And depending on the press box, it's the very best seat in the house. I've always said that the view from the Bristol press box is exactly what I imagine the view is going to be like from heaven. I love the Bristol press box. However, if you're in the press box, you are absolutely removed from what's taking place down in the pits in the garage. You can't get quotes from the competitors when something happens. And unless it's on TV, you can't see the pushing and the shoving for yourself if a squabble breaks out. I think I know the answer because I know where you almost always wound up. But where did you fall? in that debate, press box or infield, which did you actually prefer? Well, I preferred the press box, but let me clarify something here. When I broke into racing, there were several afternoon papers as well as morning papers. The morning paper guys were almost inevitably in the press box. Where the afternoon guys went, we worked out of the garage area and the pits because we had to get a different angle on the story because we were an afternoon paper. It's how I started out. We couldn't report the same thing that the morning papers were reporting because we were a different paper. We had to have a different angle. You found that when you were down in the garage area working there. So your take on the race was something a little bit different than what it was to the morning guys who actually reported the nuts and bolts of what happened in the race. Afternoon guys had to get something different. That started to go away when two things came around. Many, many pit notes from the track and from the manufacturer representatives. That was one thing. And the other thing was afternoon papers started dying off. Even when I was in Roanoke, the two papers merged and I became a morning paper guy, which meant I had to be in the press box more often. That's how all that came across. Morning paper, afternoon paper. What are you talking about, man? (laughs) What's a newspaper? (laughs) You're you're too young. (laughs) (laughs) Well, me, and honestly, I'm going to go out on limb and say it's because of the race fan that was always in me and remains to this day. I always preferred the press box simply because of the view. I enjoyed being up in the press box and having the best view of the racetrack possible. And no, for all you smart Alec Winston cup, scene photographers out there. And for you smart Alec executive editor of Winston cup scene out there, it wasn't just for the Oreo cookies that were in the press box. (laughs) Oh, that's a relief to hear. I don't believe it, but that's a relief to hear. (laughs) (laughs) We better move on. Okay. Jimmy Spencer led this race for a total of 69 laps early in the event, but he spun in turn two and brushed the wall at one point. It was incredibly hot and humid that day. And after sustaining damage to their cars, Dale Jarrett and Jimmy Spencer both struggled pretty mightily 
with fumes getting into their car. And on the cover, Jeff Gordon is sitting down in Victory Lane and down in a cold bottle of water. And she is on the cover too. (laughs) (laughs) The other she who must not be named. (laughs) (laughs) Now, with all that being said, my biggest what if of that day is not Dell Jarrett winning a million dollars. It is not about Jeff Gordon winning or not winning. My biggest what if of that day would have been Jimmy Spencer staying competitive and racing Hut Strickland for the win. <laughs> now that would have been a scenario to see. Probably a war would have broken out right there on the track. <laughs> Hutt made his feelings about Jimmy abundantly clear in last week's episode. And even though he insisted that he was always a squeaky clean driver, but if he and Jimmy had been able to have at it for the win that afternoon in Darlington, I can assure you beyond the faintest shadow of a doubt, the sparks would have flown and Ricky Craven and Kurt Busch wouldn't have had nothing on Jimmy Spencer and Hutt Strickland going for the checkered flag. Yeah, it would have been quite the show. I think everybody would have liked to have seen that, but didn't turn out that way. Dale Earnhardt had been injured in that really bad crash at Talladega earlier in the year, and he was still experiencing the effects of that mishap. He had gotten out of the car at the brickyard and turned it over to Mike Skinner, and he'd been very emotional about that. He had run really, really well at Watkins Glen, finished sixth, sat on the pole, but he was still in a lot of pain, and I don't think that pain went away for quite some time. Dale crashed in turn two on lap 194, and he finished 12th two laps down. He said in the pit pass item, I reckon the problem is I think I know more than the doctors. I feel like I'm 0%. My shoulder hurts and my muscles are sore. It's just going to take a little more time to heal. Now, this is the intimidator that we're talking about. This is the man in black. This is John Wayne that we're talking about. (laughs) And he says that he feels like he is 0%. Well, there's one thing, Rick, and you know this as well as I do. Drivers really don't like to get out of their cars, even when they're in pain. We've seen drivers who shouldn't be in their cars at all at least start the race before they give away to a leaf driver. After the brickyard, Dale didn't want to do that, and he didn't do that, but I think he paid for it because I think he extended his injuries, which I believe reduced his competitiveness. Yeah, I don't think he did himself any favors. And yeah, he like I said, he's John Wayne and tough and all that, but by staying in that car as long as he did, I think it took a little of the shine off a little bit. So Ward Burton's car caught on fire when he crashed during his qualifying lap at Darlington. And he actually spun through the flames a couple of times and competitors helping out competitors will never cease to amaze me. But who was the very first person towards car to help him out of that? Ricky Rudd. We've seen many times competitors going out to help other competitors who are in danger on the track. I think it's just the nature of these guys because they they all know what dangers they face and they all want to be sure that they can get past them as much as possible. Phil Cavelli 
had a photo of that incident and Ricky Rudd is right there. He's helping Ward Burton get out of that car. The flames are still visible at the back of the car. And there's also a Hendrick Motorsports crew member running to the accident. And Steve, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's Chad Knauss. I can't tell for sure because it's not a close up, but I think it's Chad Knauss trying to get there. Well, I, it may have been Chad Knauss, but it was a crewman. And crewmen are part of the scenario where drivers and competitors try to take care of each other. It, that's indicative of that. In the truck race at the fairgrounds racetrack in Nashville, where you have never been, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> Harry Gant was leading on lap 229 of the 255 lap event when he got together with Mike Skinner's lap truck coming off turn four. So Harry was going for the win. Dave Rosendi's won. And after retiring from Winston Cup, Harry Gant ran a total of 11 races on what is now the Camping World Truck Series with a best finish of eighth at Flemington. He also ran the Winston Select All-Star Race that year at Charlotte while filling in for Bill Elliott, who had been hurt at Talladega. Now, of course, we remember Harry Gant retiring from Winston Cup at the end of the 1994 season, but the fact that he came back and he ran the Winston for Bill Elliott but also ran 11 truck races that's not something that I had quite remembered. Well, you're right. I barely remember Harry racing in trucks myself, but he did. I think it was just a way of staying in the sports somehow. And Harry raced for teams that needed him. There was another incredibly well-written news story in this issue about the release of the 1997 Winston Cup schedule and about how it was released way earlier that year than what it usually was back then. The next year's schedule typically wasn't released until the Winston Cup Awards Banquet, but there was an ill wind that was starting to blow in the sport. And Bill France Jr., he launched a preemptive strike, and he released the 1997 Winston Cup schedule at Darlington. There were basically five major changes. The inaugural dates at Texas, and the track that was at the time called the California Speedway, a second race at New Hampshire, the move of Talladega's annual July race to October, and even though it had already been confirmed, it was already official, but to see the 1997 schedule without North Wilkesboro on it was absolutely jarring. Well, NASCAR played cool because there were a lot of changes that were happening to the sport. And you, it figured the news on these changes needed to get out early. It had been taking a lot of heat for waiting so long to release the schedule. This was one way to take off some of that heat and let these changes be known. I don't know that it was so much an attempt to get the heat off, but in my opinion, I think the only reason they released it that early was... So Bruton Smith could maybe sit in the corner and quit yapping about a second race at Texas, <laughs> at least for the time being. <laughs> well, that was part of it. But if you notice, Rick, NASCAR has never waited till the end of the year to release the new schedule ever since then. Never. Uh, no, they release it as soon as they possibly can. Mike Hembry had a feature story in this issue on Mike Eggy, who was the manager of the engine department at Penske Racing South. Get this. 
Mike had worked for eight years at General Dynamics as a manufacturing development engineer and worked in some pretty sensitive conditions while building weapon systems for the U.S. military. And so now he's building engines for Rusty Wallace. (laughs) Mike, Mike was a part of an influx of highly educated engineers coming into NASCAR because the technology of the sport demanded experts in certain areas of engineering be there. And more and more of them showed up and are still part of the sport today. As I mentioned in the intro, there were rumors that Dell Earnhardt was going to buy North Wilkesboro and keep it open for Bush and truck races. But when it comes to this news story that was in this issue, let's just say that Dell wasn't saying much, if anything, confirming or denying such rumors. <laughs> Dell said, I hadn't thought about all that. Don, talking about Don Hawk, his business manager, and Bruton have been doing all the talking. So I guess you'll have to ask them. I know Don had a conversation with Bruton, but I don't know what it consisted of. I think what Bob Bear wants is to see the track go back into the hands of the Staley family and let them run races there. Knowing that, I sure don't want to get into the middle of any family business. And then Dell added, I think what Don is doing is throwing up a smoke screen to cover the other things that we're doing. We've got some exciting things going. At least I think they're exciting. And we're going to be making some announcements before too long. No one has caught on to the things we've got going on. And now that they're worried about North Wilkesboro, we're glad. Well, Dale was absolutely right. There was a smoke screen. I did talk to Dale about North Wilkesboro, and he had absolutely no interest. And he told me at that time, I've got too much going on to be involved in that. And I said, what's going on? He said, you'll see. And he winked. Do you think that that's something that he and Don Hawk started? It's a possibility. You can never tell. Business brings about some strange strategies sometimes. I think that that big news was the formation of Dell Earnhardt Incorporated to run a full season for Steve Park at the Bush Series level. I think you're right. And look at what Dell Earnhardt Incorporated eventually turned into. And that is exactly why Dale did not want to get involved in anything in North Wilkesboro. As he said, yeah, a whole lot going on, and we'd all find out what it was very shortly, which we did. Hey, y'all, this is Ward Burton, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. So, Steve, I have a little bit of personal news that I feel like I should share with our listeners. You and I have discussed it, but I don't know that I've mentioned it here on the show before, but I have a son from my first marriage. His name is Richard, and I've not seen Richard in a while uh, for a lot of different reasons, but I've not had a lot of contact with my son from my first marriage in the last several years. But Jeannie did get a message from a friend on Facebook who had gotten some pictures from Richard. Steve, they're of my granddaughter. How about that? Congratulations, Rick. I am now officially a grandfather. I don't know exactly how to feel because of the relationship with Richard, but I can say this. If and when the time is right, 
I will leave a great big hole in the wall to not only go see Richard for the first time in a long time, but also to meet my granddaughter. Rick, I honestly hope you make that hole in the wall. Jeannie, Jeannie's leaving. Let me let me get her past okay. us. Is he going with you? Well, look, what do you think? How you doing? Hey, Otis, you want to go for a ride? Get him up on. <laughs> Otis, you want to go for a ride? Gene, let it. I thought you'd show him, show Steve him running through the house. Hey, Otis. <laughs> <laughs>